Father, I pray that in our mind's eye, each one of us can go back to the day when the chains fell off and we were set free and we were made whole and we were given life, life here, but life eternal, forever mine. Lord, we are forever yours. We thank you. And we praise you for your goodness and your mercy and your grace. That like these rains we've experienced the last few days, fall on us and allow us to live and move and have our being in ways that bring you honor and glory. And we thank you for that. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. In 2013, an, an F-16 pilot, call sign Gaza, like so if you've seen Top Gun, you know Goose, Maverick, and so forth. He ejected while flying in weather above the Adriatic, and his last words were, knock it off, spatial D. That's a phrase that meant, okay, everything stop, stop what's happening, I have spatial orientation. However, the aircraft's speed was too great. The angle was too steep, and he did not eject high enough to clear, and he was killed. That was one of the most difficult death notifications that I was involved in as a chaplain. And the next morning after the notification, the commander of the Triple Nickel, a storied unit dating back to World War II, asked me to visit his unit and say a few words to the folks. One of the questions that I had been asked and had heard others ask several times was, why did he die? Why did he have to die? And this struck me really with a sense of helplessness because no answer I could give would satisfy them or for that matter me, at least in that moment. So walking in to speak and pray, I I asked the Lord to help me. And uh, this might be the only time that some of these men and women would be open to listening to a chaplain. The only time they might open their hearts a bit to some faith. And I wanted to offer a measure of comfort. and, And even though I had reserved little for myself, but the Lord was gracious. And he gave me at least some things, a direction to go. And I said, I don't know why he died. But let me tell you why he lived. He lived for his wife and his unborn son. He lived to be a good husband, a good father, a good son, a good friend, a good officer. He lived for his comrades in arms. He lived to squeeze everything he could out of life. And he lived to fight, to fight the enemies of the United States. And perhaps outside of the military, it's a strange thing to hear that he lived to fight. But I believe 
that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are called to fight. In much the same way we live to fight, how would we do that? We fight for our parents. We fight for our spouse. We fight for our children. We, we fight for those who we love. We fight for truth, which is a rare commodity these days. And we fight to live a godly life. And those are real fights. And perhaps many don't see living as fighting. Um, but if you know what's worth living for, then you also know what's dying for, what's worth it. Turn with me to 1 Timothy 6, 11 through 21. I'll divide the passage up just a little bit in our reading. We'll read 11 in a bit first. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now, the passage goes on, but you'll note if you read it while I'm speaking, it seems that, that Paul ultimately ends his letter in verse 16. But then he goes on. It reminds me of a parent of a child leaving for college, you know, saying, oh, don't forget, did you bring? And, and just, this, just this one more thing. Wait, wait, there's, there's, there's one more thing. And, and Paul, he doesn't know there's going to be a second Timothy. I, Paul doesn't know if he's going to live out the week. He wants to get it all in. And so his goal is to say to Timothy everything he can. He wants to pass it on to him. And he's giving Timothy a way forward. And the words could hardly be more powerful. To, to flee from what to pursue, what to fight for, what to take hold of. So Paul addresses, he opens this thing up right away with a striking phrase, O man of God. Now in the Old Testament, this was reserved for prophets. In the New Testament, this was only spoken of with Timothy. Only Timothy is addressed this way. Then Paul had moved away from my son in the faith to a man of God. Paul knew that he would soon fade from the scene and that Timothy would be the man that others would look up to. Essentially, he's saying, Timothy, I'm proud of you. You will in a way, take my place. No one can take anybody's place, but you'll now stand as a man of God. He was passing on the baton. When I was in, perhaps some of you've done this, so you'll, <laughs> you'll relate. When I was in junior high, I ran track, and, and one of the events was the, the mile relay. I think they call it the 4 by 400 today. I don't know. But anyway, so we would pass the baton from one runner 
uh, to the next. And it's an exciting race because lots of things can happen. To include dropping the baton, which is certain you lose. And as the runner comes into a little stretch of track, they have to time it just right. You don't want to slow down too much. The other guy has to speed up. He's going, and you've got to make that hand off with the baton. And if it's dropped, it just goes clanging to the ground. And you can pick it up, but you are certainly not going to win after that. And his goal was to hand that baton off to uh, Timothy. Now, there are four imperative verbs. I've already, I've already uh, put emphasis on them. But these are the words that mark what Paul is telling Timothy to do. First, he says, flee. Second, pursue. Third, fight. And finally, he says, take hold. So, flee. Scripture tells us that we are supposed to flee from certain things. We're to flee immorality. In fact, Peter tells us in chapter 2, 11 of 1 Peter, flee youthful lusts which war against the soul. There are times in your Christian's life when you don't stand your ground. I know that may sound odd, but you make what we would call an advance to the rear. You make a strategic retreat. You get out. You just leave. Proverbs 22, 3 says this, The prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and they suffer for it. Now the interesting thing for me with these words that Paul uses is they're very deliberate and they're very meaningful. This first word is fugo. Now if the first word that popped into your head was fugitive, you've got it. That's what the word means. It means to run. Perhaps you've seen the movie, or if you're of a certain age, perhaps you saw the TV series, The Fugitive, where you have uh, Dr. Richard Kimball, even though innocent, he's on the run. And even as an innocent man, he can't sleep. He can't let his guard down. He's always hyper alert. He's looking. He can never fully rest. He's always watchful. He's always on the run. Paul wants us to be that way when it comes to sin and ungodliness. He wants us to have an eye for it. He wants us to watch out. He wants us to run away from it. And Paul, because he was aware of the principalities and the power, he knows that Satan is roaming about seeking whom he may devour. So we have that first word, fugitive essentially where we get our word fugitive from. But then he has another word. He uses essentially uh, flight and pursuit. And those are vivid words describing the Christian life and Christian discipleship. Paul uses those words here to make a point, those precise words, because the word pursuit is not only opposite of the word to flee, but it was also a word specifically chosen for what it was about. The pursuit was essentially, here's what you need to think. You need to think for one generation, Boba Fett. For another generation, Dog the Bounty Hunter. He's talking about someone who's assigned to catch you. 
In other words, it's an intentional pursuit, it's a relentless pursuit, and it's active, and you don't stop. And so, what are you to pursue? According to the Scripture here, the first pursuit is righteousness. Now, some commentators take this to be righteous behavior. You're to pursue righteous behavior. And and we are certainly to live righteous and godly lives. But I don't believe that's what Paul has in mind here. I think what Paul has in mind here is we're to pursue righteousness not as a behavior, but as an understanding of our state of being. That requires a little explanation, I know. That is, when you come to Jesus Christ as your Savior, something happens to you before God. And that is, God gives Christ's righteousness to you. You are seen no longer as guilty and bound to evil and filled with weakness, but you are made righteous. Now, if we take righteousness solely as a behavior, we may end up in the trap that the Pharisees ended up in because they were always focused on behavior. And because they were focused on behavior, they focused on others' behavior. And consequently, that led to legalism. And what Paul is talking about here is is not that. Paul is talking about an understanding that gives us a sense of security and stability in life. Let me say it this way. If your sense of your acceptance by God of you is based on your performance, you will never be accepted by God. Your acceptance by God is based on the work of Jesus Christ on the cross on your behalf when you were dead in sin. Not when you were weak in sin. Not when you were struggling in sin. It's when you were dead. It's when you didn't have any power at all. That's when He saved you. That's when He made you righteous. So we do not we do please God, but understand one is based in our sanctification, the other in salvation. Now that's what Paul is talking about here. The second word is godliness, a balanced wholesomeness, a spirit, soul, body, mind, everything in good health. Paul already talked about this, where he talked about how you work the body and physical exercise is good. But if that's your exclusive focus, you miss uh, the mark. Third is fidelity or faithfulness, loyalty to God, and awareness that you have already committed your life, as in the, the chicken and the, the pig we heard about this morning. It's a total commitment. It's not a partial commitment. It's the whole thing. It's semper fi, always faithful. When you become a believer in Jesus Christ, you decided to follow God, to obey his word, to walk in the paths that he has set. And that's the basic commitment that we have for our entire lives. The next three words that Paul uses with Timothy are 
the way I believe that Timothy's to treat others. These are characteristics that he's to have that have an outworking towards others. The first one is, is love. How many times does Scripture tell us to love and that love is, in fact, the mark of a true Christian? Paul says in Romans, Owe no man anything. Don't owe any, anyone anything except this one thing, to love one another. Earlier in this letter, at the very beginning of this book, uh, now we're, we began the book this way, in uh, verse 5 of chapter 1, and now we're ending it this way. The end of our endeavor is love out of a pure heart and faith unfeigned. You know, I don't think uh, anything that jolts me more suddenly when I'm talking to someone and, and I, ask, I ask myself a question, is this what love looks like? Am I acting in love? Are the words that I'm choosing words that are based in love? How about the tone of my voice? Is it loving? And sometimes when you do a self-reflection, you can catch yourself and you can say, I think I'm going uh, down the wrong path. Let me change that. But that is the mark. The mark of the believer is love, that we love one another. That's the in our relationships, in our, with each other, in the church, at home, and wherever, uh, wherever else we go. And that's a question that we need to ask. I mean, how loving is our home? How loving is our church? Uh, when it comes to certain things like the church, numbers don't matter that much in, in that regard. What matters in terms of growing is how are individuals growing in love and in obedience to Christ. That church is alive. The next word he uses is is steadfastness. Uh, Endurance, hanging in there. And that's one of the most contagious uh, things is not hanging in there. When somebody says, I've had it, I'm not going to try anymore, I'm going to give up. It's amazing how many people harmonize with that. You see this on sports teams. You see this all the time when somebody, you see they just, it's like that's the straw that breaks the camel's back. And then what you end up with is everyone saying, ah, you know what, that's right. This is this not working and there's nothing to make it work. In a more difficult way, but it still works, is, you know, you can say, let's keep going. Keep it up. God is with us. And unwillingness to quit is the mark of a man or a woman of God in the midst of a fallen world. Finally, gentleness. Uh, Chuck Swindoll says that this word refers to controlled, confident, firm strength that offers reassurance to the, to the wounded, uh, to, the, to the weak, to the hurting. Our English word, it comes from where we get words uh, like genealogy or generation. And what it actually means, gentleness, what that, the notion there means is that we should act towards others the way we act in our family. Now, I know not all families act gently. I get that. But at the same time, there should be a gentleness uh, there. And that's what he's talking about. So Paul says, pursue these. And there are only six of them. 
uh, we can ask ourselves daily, is this happening in my life, in your life? Now, I mean, there's no more practical, and we, we touch on this a little bit every Sunday morning at the breaking of bread, uh, where when Paul tells us to do something, he says, examine yourselves. Examine yourselves. There's no more practical guideline in Scripture than that. And every day we need to give ourselves a mental checkup. How am I behaving? What's happening in my life? Where is it coming from? Then Paul adds, he adds these two more imperatives. Those are commands. Do this. He says, fight and take hold. This word fight, we've seen it before in this book. It has the notion of a disciplined, determined, intentional struggle. It's where we get our word agony from. It's something that we're in it, and we're in it for the long haul, and we're not going to stop. We fight for our families, our faith, our way of life. The fight for the faith is a continuous struggle. Every day, in everyone's life, individually, and in the life of the church uh, globally. It requires an intentional effort. And here we have, again, once again, Paul deliberately choosing words that gives us these wonderful contrasts. The tense of the verb, take hold, in the original, is, it indicates it's something that's a completed thing. It's a completed reality. It's a single happening. In other words, you do it, and it suggests that the point is to hold on to the reality of eternal life, eternal truth, assured possession. And so while the fight for the faith is a continuous process, the assurance, the assurance of salvation, of having an eternal life with God and His grace and mercy is a settled reality. I'm reminded of one of David's mighty men. I, I love the stories uh, of David, uh, David's mighty men. And uh, one, I like the way the NIV translates this in, in 2 Samuel 23.10. It says, But Eleazar stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. That's the notion that Paul is saying. Hold on, don't let go. Here you have Eleazar having been in intense combat, found that even after the battle was over, he couldn't let the sword go. He was unable to release his hand from the sword. He laid hold of it. That's what we're to do. We're to lay hold of eternal life. And then Paul charges Timothy to keep the commandment. He says, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Jesus Christ in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time and who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen.
One of the first things that I see about this is there are a lot of churches that claim that they're not confessional churches. They're not creedal churches. And, and all I want to point out there is uh, that the word credo in Latin just simply means I believe. I saw one sign one time that said, uh, no creeds, just Christ. And I'm like, I don't know what that means. I'm not, I'm not sure what they know what that means because what that means, when you say, I believe in Jesus Christ, that's a creed. Okay? So it's okay. If, if some people do it different ways, that's fine. But that's all that means is that when we make this confession... And as believers in Jesus Christ, particularly at your baptism, you would have made a public profession of faith. That is, in fact, a confession. And so, Timothy is to keep that. Now, the odds are what he's talking about is not the commandment itself. I don't think we can keep commandments, uh, you know, without spot or are blameless. Now I think we're talking about his life. Timothy, you is in, in relation to this commitment, this confession that you have made, keep your life spotless and blameless. Be pure. And then the section ends with this magnificent doxology and benediction. It's actually unlike any other in the Apostle Paul's writing. It's splendid attribution of praise to Jesus. And I love the word uh, that many versions will say. It's potentate. Uh, that's just a great word. The potentate. King of kings, Lord of lords, clothed in immortality, unapproachable light and invisibility. And there are many, including Satan, who want to claim the title of potentate. But the truth is, that Jesus is the only one. He's the only one who has the power over death. The only one who has immortality. The only one who dwells in unapproachable light. That the king of, of rulers and of earth, they may think they are something, but they are nothing in comparison to him. So we fight. We agonize. We say, I'm willing to take a stand with the one who dwells in inapproachable light. And we need to put up a fight. And we need to agonize over righteousness and godliness, over faith and love and patience and gentleness. We need to put up a fight for those things. For some, that needs to be primarily through a marriage. For others, that needs to be primarily through purity. For others, perhaps they're work for others perhaps in the church for others perhaps in their time spent with Jesus now at this point one would think that Paul had concluded the letter but he hadn't he wants to add a few more things I mean and it's it's easy to understand it's like a postscript it's like I already mentioned I mean the thing that comes to my mind if you've ever seen Fiddler on the Roof is the end of it whereas they're they're parting. They're, there's this constant. They say everything that they can possibly say until uh, they can't hear each other anymore. He says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good 
to uh, be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up a treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. To the rich, this this first postscript, I think Paul realized that maybe he hadn't said something about wealth, because he's talked about wealth already, but to the people who were already rich when they came in rich. And so he says, okay, don't be haughty, trust in God, be rich in good works and in giving and in sharing. I don't know, but it was perhaps from this, someone contemplating this text that someone came up with the, uh, you can't take it with you, uh, but you can send it on ahead. (laughs) You know, I mean, why not? And then with his second postscript, he concludes the, the letter, and his admonition is to guard. And that is, this admonition for us warns us always of, to never put our thoughts and our minds intently on theological debate in isolation. We don't do that at the expense of our faith in working it out in our lives in practice. They're always joined together. And every one of us who can say that we are Christian has been given truth. It's the kind of truth that you're not going to find in universities. It's a truth in an absolute domain. And it gives us the knowledge of being able to distinguish between wrong and error and to love truth, and we're to guard that, we're to use it, we're to live by it, and not allow anyone to take it from us or water it down. So a few takeaways. Like Gaza's last words, military phrases or military commands are brief, simple, and clear. When people talk about what God wants them to do, and it's clearly spoken of in the Bible, He's already told you what He wants you to do. It is not difficult. It is clear. It is easy to understand. Now, there are situations that aren't directly addressed. That's fine. We can talk about those. But when we have a direct command, we need He doesn't disguise them from us. He wants us to know them. So, they're simple. But, as Clausewitz said, everything in war is simple. But even the simple is so hard. So sometimes those simple things are difficult to follow. Second, commands from Scripture allow us only one response. That's obedience. No critical thinking, no guessing, no wandering, no trying to find the the gray not when a command is involved. God tells us these things and we are to obey. Third, there's a cost when commands aren't obeyed. We're not commanded to do stuff because God likes telling us what to do. He tells us to do things to preserve our spirit and our soul and our joy 
and our happiness. We're told to do these things for our benefit. And when we don't, we, we may find difficulties ahead. When you look at living for Christ and his kingdom, you have to understand what this fighting is for. I mean, Jesus fought. He fought in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus fought. He fought for you. He fought for me. He died for you. He died for me. And what is our response to be to his warfare on our behalf? Many of you have heard of uh, Cyrus the Great. He was the king of uh, Persia. There's a story that comes out of that uh, time period where there was a rebel chief. His name was uh, Cagular. And this chief had a, you know, a sizable army, but Cyrus was Cyrus and defeated him. And he brought Cagular, his children, and his wife into the hall to be executed. And before he was executed, Cyrus asked him, If I were to spare your life, what would you do? And he said, O king, I would serve you the rest of my days. And then Cyrus said, What would you do if I spared your children? And he said, I would gather all my forces and raise your flag. And he said, What would you do if I spared your wife? And he said, I would die for you. In this, Cyrus spared him. I don't know about you. I can only imagine. Some of you may know directly. But if your life has ever been saved, the bond you have with that person is something that is difficult to describe. I don't think we put it on the right place in our hearts all the time. He gave his life for you. There is only one response to that. And that is, Lord, I will serve you. I will take all the things that I've collected and made that were used to my benefit and give them to you. I would die for you. Why? Because you died, in this case, Christ died for me. And so, that's worth living for. And in knowing what's worth living for, you also know what's worth dying for. And the question is, what are you living for? Is that worth your life? Is that worth Christ's death on the cross for you? If it's not, think about it and search for those things, righteousness and godliness, perseverance, 
Search for love and kindness. Search for the things that will bring you not just life, but abundant life now. Father, we thank you and we praise you for your goodness and your mercy. When we were full up rebels, actually even, we can't even describe where we were at, you still gave us life, those of us who trust in Jesus Christ. We thank you for that. Through this one who is inapproachable, the one who is filled with light, inaccessible, no one has ever seen this one. In this one's name we pray. Amen.